Hello and welcome to the second of three bonus episodes of the OME Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Petro, and these special episodes are previewing some of the featured and keynote speakers from the upcoming OME 2021 virtual conference in May. On today's episode, we will hear from John Orr, Kyle Pierce, Lisa Lenny Borden, and Robert Q. Berry. But to start off, we're going to hear from former Ontarian Graham Fletcher. My name is Graham Fletcher. I'm a uh, math specialist. Uh, formerly, I guess I lived in Canada. I lived in Canada till I was 25 years old. Now I live uh, in the United States. I live here uh, in Atlanta. And uh, my relationship to math is really in a kindergarten through fifth grade space. Uh, started out as a grade three teacher for eight years, jumped around from fourth to second. And then I uh, kind of started playing around as, as a math coach at a school, then to a district level. And now I support uh, teachers and students on kind of all over the place, just uh, really just building that capacity to really empower teachers so that they can in turn empower their students. So Graham, you're one of our featured speakers at OME 2021. You're doing a session called Building Math Residue with Lessons That Stick. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what that is going to entail. Yeah, I, I think uh, this has been a really powerful word for me, this math residue. And it comes from James Hibbert and his book, Making Sense. And and it really struck me when I read it for the first time, I think around 2010. Uh, and what it was is, I, we all have it, no matter what grade you teach in. We have students that, you know, you, you teach something in, in, on Monday and then Tuesday rolls around and they've already forgotten it. Or, or you, they have that understanding on Friday, the weekend passes, and then you come back Monday, you're like, what, how have you forgotten this? Like, like, like you knew it on, on, uh, on Friday, but you forget it on Monday. And so what I've realized is the more that I get to play with a variety of students and work with a variety of teachers is that really what's happening is it's, we're getting a false positive that students have this understanding when they really don't. I think that's something that we can all kind of relate to. And, and I, I start thinking about it. What is it that really makes uh, things stick for students. And, and so what I've realized is I think uh, there's a lot of really good tasks out there and, and task placement is really key. But what are those things that, that really leave that mathematical residue? So using problem-based tasks, I know some, some people call them, I call them three-act tasks, uh, shout out to Dan Meyer there for creating them, is, is instead of saving them and waiting them for the, the end of the unit, I really want to use that modeling task, and I know modeling is a is a really big push right now in Ontario. Is uh, I really want to use that modeling task not at the end of the unit, but at the beginning of the unit. Now, even if students don't have an understanding of what you're doing with that original task, they're still going to remember that task because it's grounded in media. It's grounded in a way that really piques all of their senses, and in doing so. After that task, whether they're successful in getting an answer or not, and for me, the answer doesn't really matter at the beginning part of a unit. At the beginning part of the unit, I want to launch something that that's going to kind of anchor students' thinking for everything that I'm about to teach in that upcoming unit. So when we take a really good task and we put it at the beginning part of the unit, I want to show how we can leverage that modeling task at the beginning part of a unit to really use it as formative and diagnostic assessment and not just leaving it for summative at the end of the unit to say, hey, we taught a three-act task. So it's really about task placement and building from that task placement. So do you think that the, the, the idea of building more residue comes from the tasks themselves or is there some more general ideas that are used within the tasks that help build that residue? 
Yeah, so, solid question. And, and I think so many times we'll look at a task as teachers and be like, oh yeah, my kids will love that. And we'll go and we'll jump in front of the students with the task and it maybe only resonates with about three or four students. And 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 so trying to, to create and, and identify tasks which are going to be accessible to every single student in your class. Uh, every student's going to be able to relate to it at some level or another to really make it equitable. So it's about finding those tasks that all your students can connect to. And when all your students can connect to these tasks, that's what leaves that mathematical residue. So uh, how many times do we ask a question or throw up a task and kids just stare at it? With, uh, with, with a blank stare. So it's really in using tasks that invite all students to the mathematical conversation. And because all students are contributing to that conversation, it really helps build and then leave that lingering conversation and that lingering curiosity for which you then can uh, build more understanding on as, as you go throughout the unit. Okay, so thanks for that that little brief uh, intro as to what you're going to be talking about. And I know you're going to be doing a few sessions at the conference. So uh, thanks for talking with us, Graham, and we uh, are excited to see you in May. Yeah, looking forward to it and, and hoping everyone can stay safe and healthy until we can all uh, come together in that virtual space. Definitely looking forward to the opportunity. Appreciate it. That was Graham Fletcher, one of our featured speakers, speaking about lessons that stick with something called math residue. You can hear him speak on the Wednesday of the conference. Up next are math moment makers John Orr and Kyle Pierce. Uh, hi, uh, everybody. I am John Orr. I am a high school math teacher over here in Chatham, Kent, Ontario. Currently, I am teaching through a pandemic, just like you guys all are, and and uh, teaching full day classes uh, to the same section. And I've got right now a section of MAP4C. And at the time of this recording, that's what I will be teaching. So uh, my relationship to mathematics is uh, I have kind of been a, a teacher who was very traditional for many years. And I have recently in the last, I guess, say seven or eight years, switched the way I've been teaching to be very uh, problem-based, problem-focused, struggle-focused with my students. And uh, that's a switch I've been making for the last few years. But uh, definitely, I will never teach the way I used to teach. Again, I have to. I'm, I'm sold on this way of teaching from seeing it from my students firsthand. Hey, hey, everybody. I'm Kyle Pierce. I'm from uh, Windsor, Essex County uh, with the Greater Essex County District School Board. Right now, I am the K-12 through math consultant for my district, but uh, a high school math teacher who now really enjoys the K-8 to world as well in this new world. So I've been uh, really loving my experience in this particular role. And, you know, my relationship with math, uh, similar to John, you know, I learned in a very, uh, I, I would say traditional, what, what I mean by traditional is, you know, fairly procedures first mentality, uh, pre-taught steps and procedures. And that's the way I did math. And that's what I thought mathematics was for the majority of my life. Um, and luckily for me, I managed to get through, you know, I, I was what I would call a lucky one who was able to memorize enough steps and procedures to uh, get the marks that I needed to sort of continue on my merry way. And it was only after a, a 
a number of years teaching in the classroom with uh, a variety of students from K through 12, or sorry, from grade nine through 12, you know, students who uh, many were like me doing well based in this procedures-based approach to mathematics. Um, But the problem was students who weren't like me were really struggling. And, uh, you know, I went on this, uh, I would say, big journey from, you know, going from mathematics the way I was taught to trying to make math easy for everyone and and not providing any struggle or opportunity for problem solving. And then, you know, now I've sort of landed in this, uh, this current place where my relationship with math is all about conceptualizing. It's all about understanding and building that conceptual understanding, uh, conceptual understanding, so we can work towards procedural fluency. So uh, that's uh, that's my relationship with math now, and I get so geeked trying to help others uh, bump into that understanding through visuals and and through concrete representations. All right, and uh, we are talking about OME twenty twenty one this year, and I know many of our listeners are quite familiar with uh, you two and your Make Math Moments juggernaut uh, podcast, website, virtual conference. This year at the OME twenty twenty one conference, you're going to be uh, hosting a panel. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that is going to look like. Sure, sure thing. Uh, it, we are kind of actually at the time of this recording, we're, we're pretty early in the stages of planning that out. However, we're pretty uh, excited to chat with a few individuals about lots, you know, uh, current kind of issues that are teachers that are kind of worried about. And uh, the I guess the story behind this session uh, is that Kyle and I, like you just mentioned, uh, David, is that we host the podcast Making Math Moments That Matter. And the organizers of OME thought it would be a great idea to host a live podcast episode uh, during the conference. And I think originally it was uh, scheduled to be face to face. So that was going to be pretty cool that if we were all in a room in, you know, in a, in a kind of a panel session and we were recording live for a later release of the podcast episode. Uh, we're going to do this digitally this time around, but we've got, uh, we got some folks, uh, that were some material educators. We're going to uh, have as our panel. And then Kyle, uh, I think we're going to grab some questions from uh, listeners of the podcast, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're we're really trying to make it all about Ontario educators, although the podcast obviously mm-hmm. is accessible anywhere in the world, just like this one is. Um, we're going to really focus in on what's going on in the Ontario world of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, a, a few obvious, obvious ones that come to mind, obviously, is teaching through a pandemic. Both John and I have uh, have done a lot of work around, you know, how we can do that as, I would say, as effectively as we can. Both John and I believe that, you know, teaching face-to-face, there's really nothing that can come close to that experience. But some of the other key pieces is that uh, we're really hoping to dive into is the idea of the elementary new curriculum that uh, was released this mm-hmm. past spring mm-hmm. uh, during the pandemic, right? So, I mean, it, it was sort of like, you know, ready, fire, aim sort of uh, approach. And uh, we're really interested to hear how some of these education educational leaders in mathematics from Ontario, uh, what their perspectives mm-hmm. are. And uh and we're also probably going to be trying to tackle a couple questions and get some thoughts on de-streaming grade nine mathematics. So big ideas here. We're hoping we can get to all of them. But uh, but those are, are three of the big ones that seem to be emerging from the questions we're hearing from our Ontario educators. 
So those are definitely some topics that I know teachers are going to be interested in, um, if not are tired of hearing about. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think we all we all have a lot of places we can go uh, in in terms of improving ourselves in those areas. So we look forward to this this chat. Uh, I think it's going to be a a really great you know. On your podcast, you always do a good job of, of really pulling out ideas from people who are struggling with things. And, you know, now that you've got these, um, these the, you'll have these expert panelists, uh, you'll be able to take those questions. And I think with those the extra brains in the room, hopefully come up with some, some great strategies for our, our participants. So I want to thank you for giving us a little bit of a, a, a brief uh, idea of what is going to be going on in May at OME 2021. And uh, we will see you there. Oh, thanks for uh, chatting with us, David. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, looking forward to it. And uh, friends who are listening, uh, David, I don't know if you know this, but he is uh, one of the chairs of OAME 2022. Woo! So uh, thanks for that there, David. Uh, we can't wait to bring OAME down to Windsor, Essex. Wait a minute! Aren't you one of the chairs as well, Kyle? <laughs> I, I, you, you, you kind of wrote me into that uh, that role, but I lean on you for your expertise as uh, past president and uh, past chair from back in uh, what was it, 2011, when uh, when we last hosted down here in the deep south of mm. Ontario. I remember that 20, one. That was a while ago. 2011. Yes, yeah, and uh, so we hope, hope, we hope that that will be uh, back to face to face when we are back here in Windsor in right. 2022. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having us here, David. Yep, thanks and, so much. Uh, yeah, we hope to see some people face-to-face uh, in our neck of the woods. That was John Orr and Kyle Pierce, who are going to be holding a panel discussion with some prominent Ontario educators to talk about current topics. They will be doing that session on the Wednesday. And yes, Kyle did allude to the fact that OME will be in Windsor in 2022, and he and I are the co-chairs of the conference. We are hopeful that we will be back to a face-to-face conference by then. But for now, let's get back to OME 2021. And up next, we're going to hear from featured speaker, Lisa Lunny Borden. So hi, I'm uh, Lisa Lunny Borden, and I'm a professor at St. Francis Xavier University in Anaganish, Nova Scotia. I teach math education, and I currently hold the John Jerome Paul Chair for Equity in Math Education. And my mandate is really to support all things related to math that support primarily Mi'kmaq and African Nova Scotian students here in Nova Scotia. So I spend a lot of time thinking about what it means to decolonize math and to teach math in a more equity focused way. Okay. And seeing this is equity counts, uh, your session, your featured session is called moving achievement together holistically. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So Moving Achievement Together Holistically is one of the primary projects of uh, my research chair. And, you know, if you look at the letters, it spells out math. So it's a focus on math with a particular focus on on trying practices that are um, embedded in Mi'kmaq ways of knowing. So um, in my research work, I have been blessed to work alongside the Mi'kmaq community for, for almost 30 years now. And one of the things that I've learned is that the importance of decolonizing education um, is really rooted in understanding how ways of knowing impact how children learn. 
And, and those ways of knowing are often deeply connected to language structures. And so the Mi'kmaq language in particular being a verb-based language, I spend a lot of time thinking about the role of verbs and a focus on process and action in mathematics. Um, it's something that I've coined verbifying math or verbing math. And the idea that we can actually bring more verbs into the math classroom and really focus on process and action to help students um, figure out concepts. So we, we spend a lot of time designing tasks that focus attention on mathematical concepts without actually naming the concept first. So we play around with ideas and we help kids to figure out, you know, through ex exploration and patterning concepts. And then when we figured it, we name it. So we might do something like uh, building sets and building rows and taking jumps on a number line and, and doing those repeated ways and, and, and to build the idea of multiplication before we actually name it. So the focus is on the grouping and the equivalent grouping. Um, and so doing that through building and play um, before we figure it out. So our Moving Achievement Together Holistically is really a project that focuses on P to eight right now. Um, although we work with some secondary teachers and coaches as well. And we, um, myself and, and some of the colleagues who work with me, we really look at how do we bring these ideas into the math class at all levels? And what does that look like when we're doing that in math class? And we're working with coaches and we're working with teachers and yeah, it's fun. <laughs> so I'm curious, the idea of not naming things, you know, where does that stem from? It's not that we don't ever name them. But we're actually trying to model what mathematicians really do. So we play around with the process. And when we figure it out, we name it because that's what mathematicians do. You know, no mathematician goes into work one day and says, today I'm going to discover quadratic equations. They look at patterns and they play around with patterns and they say, hey, all these patterns do the same thing. Let's name them something. <laughs> Let's name them quadratic equations. And so this whole idea of of representing math concepts and letting kids come to math concepts in a similar way. Because some of the time, what I find is the language actually creates a barrier for kids. So you go into a grade four class and you say, today we're gonna learn about division. And they'll be like, oh, my brother learned division last year. He said it was hard, you know? But if you say, today we're gonna play around with this test, we're gonna think about different ways that we can share 20 counters in equal groups. No kid is gonna say, oh, I heard about that last year, right? And so it's the whole idea of focusing on the action and the process because that's really where the math is. And then when we figure it out, like I say, we name it and then we name it so we can do new things with it. So we can explore what it what that concept does. Um, but for me, I wanna create a classroom where it's accessible for everyone and that they can bring their own ways of knowing, being and doing into the classroom. So if we're just playing with grouping or sharing or other kinds of actions, then we can actually allow all kids to access that. And as they begin to uncover and explore things, the opportunity for the naming comes, but it comes later. Okay, so maybe this is a, uh, a frivolous question or a silly question, but did you come up with moving achievement together holistically? Like how hard was that to match it up to the word math or did you have other names for the... Uh... I. I cannot take I cannot take credit for it. Actually, I have um, a doctoral student who was uh, working with me as a, a research assistant at the time, and we were trying to come up with something. And we had this whole idea of like you know holistic, and, and it's about the achievement gap, but it's also like working together. And so she came up with 
moving achievement together holistically. And I was like, I love it. That's what we're going to use. So I can't take credit for it. Shout out to Ellen Carter for that one. That's a, a sign from above. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so thank you, uh, Lisa, for giving us a preview of your featured session at OME 2021. Mm -hmm. uh, and we look forward to seeing you uh, online virtually in May. Sounds, sounds great. I'm looking forward to it. That was Lisa Lenny Borden talking about moving achievement together holistically. She'll be speaking on the Friday of the conference. Finally in this episode, we're going to hear from keynote speaker Robert Q. Berry. So I am Robert Berry. Currently, I am the Samuel Braley Gray Professor of Mathematics Education at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. I am also the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in the School of Education at the University of Virginia. My connection to mathematics education, I guess it's, you know, I, I would say it started um, as I was a classroom teacher. I was a classroom teacher for nine years. I primarily taught middle school mathematics. I taught in Virginia, in Lynchburg, Virginia, and Newport News, Virginia. And then I also taught in um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina for a little bit. You know, I would say, you know, my entry point into kind of the role that I'm progressed to now was I was, when I was teaching middle school math at Booker T. Washington Middle School in Newport News, Virginia, I was working on my master's degree in mathematics and and well mathematics education rather i i my master's degree for my thesis i program calculators to make systematic errors on purpose and i wanted to really i was trying to get at students um understanding of computational estimation and so i want to know at what point were they recognized that the calculator was given an output of an error. And so I program calculated to make errors that would be 5% above or below the actual solution all the way as high as to 50% above or below the act, uh, actual solution. And I want to know at what point would they recognize the error in the calculator. And I bring that up as a point of, you know, I did a study, you know, one, I got, a, I, I worked towards a master's degree because I wanted to change my pay scale. You know, I was a teacher. I want, you know, with a master's degree, I can be on a different pay scale and make more money. But what happened was when I did that, when I did my thesis, I actually got an award from the university in which I did my thesis and also got an award from the Southern Regional Educational Board as well and was encouraged, you know, to continue on to do a doctorate. I had not considered doing a doctorate. And so that that's how kind of my entree into kind of the research side of this work was from that. And with the encouragement, you know, from that thesis work, I ended up at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and did a doctorate at UNC Chapel Hill. I had the fortune of working with Dr. Carol Malloy. And if you don't know who Carol Malloy is, Carol, when I was a doctoral student, she was on the NCTM board of directors at the time when I was a doctoral student at the University of North Carolina. And so from Carol, I learned a lot. And, and I will say this, if you can recall the 2000 standards, the 2000 NCTM standards, she was on the writing team for the 2000 NCTM standards. And I was her doctoral student, right? You know, and, and I came on in 90, uh, 99. Uh, 98, 99, um, when they were working on that. And so I had some 
you know, learning from her about, you know, the, the, the standards movement that happened prior to with the 89 standards, but also the new two, uh, 2000, uh, well, not the new then 2000 standards um, that she was on the writing team for as, as a member of the board of directors. That provided me some, some, some really kind of a, this kind of trajectory of understanding not only the development of standards, but also the development of principles as it relates to the principles and standards for school mathematics. So I would say I was fortunate to have that kind of training background and experience as someone who um, provided me the kind of insight in, into that work. But Carol Malloy, if you don't know of her work, she had a strong equity lens to her work, to her research, and I took on a similar lens. While I was at UNC, my dissertation work focused on Black boys who have been successful with school mathematics. And the way I defined success was based on course enrollment patterns. And so I was particularly at the time, you got to imagine in early 2000, I, I was looking at Black boys who were enrolled in Algebra 1 or Geometry in middle school. Because at the time, that was a consider, uh, I, I would say, a, a high-level uh, course of study. Um, and I wanted to know what were the experiences that provided them the access and the opportunity to garner entry into this kind of this track. And, and so that's how I defined success was based on course enrollment patterns. It doesn't imply that they were successful based on grades, but it did imply that they were successful because they had access to upper level mathematics that that I would say was a phenomenon. And that's the way I described it in my research because I was in a, uh, I would say I did my research in a state which had a significantly high population of uh, black students. But at the time when I did my dissertation, I did it in a school district where every black boy who was in algebra one or geometry in middle school participated in my in my dissertation study, which was a very small number, only eight of them. <laughs> um, and so um, and so that's why that's how I describe it as a phenomenon. We, when you think about a school district that had nearly the black population of, of the district was nearly uh, at the time 54 percent African-American. I think that number is even larger today. So you got a, a, a majority black school district and, and not many black boys who were in the, I guess, had access to the upper level mathematics uh, track. And so that, that really launched me into my, my research as I moved, graduated with my doctorate into the work that I continued to do, which was to study the experiences of black boys. While, when I came to University of Virginia, I founded a program called Math Men in Mission, where we created a summer opportunities for boys, for black boys to study uh, additional learning opportunities in mathematics, but also to have opportunities to engage in what we might describe as rites of passage activities. And so there was this kind of engagement, not only around mathematics, but also around, you know, boyhood and manhood development, so to speak. So when I say that, MQ, Math Men and Mission, it was a program sponsored by the local school districts, as when I say local school districts here where I, where I currently reside, as well as 100 Black men of Central Virginia. 
So the mentors who served in the program were Black men in the community in which I lived who supported Black boys who were in grades three through eight. Part of our mission was to create a cohort of boys who can gain access to upper-level mathematics courses so when they transition to high school that they can be participatory in the um, MESA program. And MESA stands for Math, Engineering, and Science Academy. How successful we were with that? I would say we were successful in the sense that I think we got boys engaged and excited about learning and doing mathematics. But, you know, over the 12 years, we transitioned our mission from not these boys gaining access to the MESA program because there was a kind of a mismatch between what we wanted to accomplish and what was happening in the MESA program. And so we just wanted our, our boys to have, you know, really to build community among them, among each other, to build community across the gray bands and feel connected to and engage in with mathematics. And I bring the MQ program up because that's the practicality of my research was kind of embedded into that, in that kind of experience. And it gave me access to kind of understanding and bring the experiential aspects to that, to that work. Yeah. So my, my, much of my work has been in the, areas around equity issues and mathematics education. Lately, I've been doing more work around qualitative metasynthesis and understanding culturally relevant, culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy and understanding. So there's a a body of research around culturally relevant, culturally responsive teaching and pedagogy. But that research is not often embedded in mathematics, teaching and learning. And so I wanted to see how scholars interpret CRT and CRP in mathematics, teaching and learning. And, and unfortunately, there's a dearth of research. There's a large body of research in this space in other areas, but there's not much empirical work in mathematics. And so, you know, I'll, you know, I can, I'll stop there. You know, if there's another question, David, you'd like to ask me, but that kind of give you, I know I was long winded with that response, but that was, that gives you kind of, my positionality and and how I see myself as uh, a math educator. It's funny. It sounds like you have you have stories upon stories that you could tell that you've <laughs> experienced over the years. It sounds like you had like some successes, but some struggles along the way. Yeah. So I feel like after listening to you just talk about your mathematical journey there, uh, and then looking at the title of your OAME talk. It's Mathematics, Social Justice, and Actions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of a preview of exactly how those two are connected and, and what you're going to be talking about. Yeah, great. So I am one of the editors uh, of, uh, of a book that just came out in April. It's High School Mathematics and, and res- Responding and Exploring to Social Injustice. I mean, so this book looks at the intersection between mathematics teaching and learning and social justice. In the book, there are 22 lessons uh, that teachers can use, high school teachers can use in their classroom. And I would argue maybe there are some lessons that are appropriate for middle school as well. Across a wide range of things in terms of mathematics content, everything from algebra to some calculus-based things to some data stuff, but also around a, a, a broad range of topics from gerrymandering to issues of bullying in schools and classrooms. And so, and the reason, you know, 
this topic, you know, speaks to me because, you know, when I was a teacher, when I think about teaching and I think about the work I do, I, I find that when we're able to contextualize mathematics in a way, it, it creates access points for students and engagement points for students. You know, certainly we want to center the mathematics, and that is important. But I also want to create the space where students can enter uh, in the mathematics. And this is where I think, when we think about how social justice in intersects in this space, how do we think about mathematizing the world in which students live and understand? And I think social justice speaks to that. However, you know, the, the other part of that is, so how does social justice show up in this work? So we can, you know, there's a lesson called Listen to Glisten, which deals with the survey. Glisten is a survey around bullying with regards to students who identify as gay and lesbian. And, and how does that play? You know, so it's a survey that's done in schools. And so it's a data lesson. And, and I bring that up as a point to the survey is done nationally in the United States, I think every other year. Um, but there's some, you know, we can begin to unpack what the data is saying about schools. And what the data tends to suggest here is that as people become more knowledgeable about bullying, but also become more active in the advocacy space about gay and LGBTQ uh, community and become more knowledgeable about that space, we see that the incidence of bullying has gone down over the years. And so it's a nice way of thinking about the how data can speak to us and how students can understand what that data might mean. But the social justice part of that is, so, so what? You know, so what? There's a, there's a so what part of this. And I think the social justice is not that we engage in the mathematics, but as a result of doing, doing the mathematics, what are you going to do about it? What can you do about it? You know, and so, um, and so this is where we get students to engage in what is, I would say, social political consciousness to think about. I've, been get, I've learned the mathematics on, around this issue of social justice. Now, what is the action or the actionable thing I'm going to do? What can I do as a result of this learning? And so that's where the social justice part, in my mind, the actionable part of it intersects there. And so there will be a middle school version as well as a, an upper elementary and a, and a lower elementary version of the books coming out um, in the future as well. I don't know when in the future, but we're working on those right now. But for me, this is the space that I've been in for a little while in terms of thinking about how does social justice show, show up in mathematics teaching and learning? And for me, unfortunately, when you think about, you know, the critique, so, you know, the political climate in which we're living in and some of the, you know, how do we, how do we help students think critically about some issues? Be critical consumers of, of kind of the things that might show up in, you know, in our kind of daily news or surveys and things of that sort. I want students to be critical and, 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 and dig deeper beyond and not just accept uh, data that shows up for them. And then think about how we then act, make those things actionable, and what do we and, and what we might do about it. So, there, you know, the social justice part of it does have kind of this activist uh, 
underpinning that's related to it because you not only want to gauge in the math, but you also want to engage in some activity behind it. Okay, so we don't want you to give your entire talk here today. So uh, <laughs> we, we, uh, you are definitely one of our, our keynote speakers at OME 2021 this year. Robert, thank you for talking to us uh, tonight. And we can't wait to hear your full talk in May. All right, uh, that's cool. Thank you. I can't wait for that keynote address from Robert. He clearly has a lot of life experiences that make him the perfect person to speak on social justice, especially on the action part. He will be doing his keynote on Wednesday, so don't miss that. That will do it for our previews, but keep in mind our other featured speakers include Karen Murray and Nancy Kawaja, as well as keynote speaker Eugenia Chang. They weren't able to talk with us for the podcast, but they round out that packed featured and keynote speaker roster for OME 2021. But of course, they aren't the only people speaking at the conference. There are over 100 other live breakout sessions spread over the five days, as well as over 30 pre-recorded breakout sessions. So don't miss out. Register now. More information can be found at oame2021.ca. This link and other links and info about today's speakers are in the podcast description. Next week, we hear from our OME preview guests one more time when we ask them what they think is working well with online learning. So stay tuned for that and stay safe.